to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination, Kaohsiung. Today, it's the history of Kaohsiung in 10 objects. The city of Kaohsiung has grown into one of Taiwan's largest, a place with its own southern identity that makes it different from cities like Taipei to the north. The city has its own proud history, too, and even a museum to showcase it in, the Kaohsiung Museum of History. With the museum now celebrating 20 years since its founding, the museum's curators have pulled out 10 objects from its collection that help tell the story of Kaohsiung's early development. Why these 10 objects in particular? Here to tell us why, and to introduce some of the objects, is the museum's deputy director, Wang Yufeng. Mr. Wang says this exhibit presents a great opportunity to take 10 of the museum's precious objects out of storage and bring them out before the public. Usually, he says, these kinds of objects seem far removed from ordinary people. But in this exhibit, citizens of Kaohsiung can see these important milestones in their city's past with their own eyes. Among the most precious of all are examples of some of the Singkan manuscripts. These manuscripts are a collection of documents, contracts about land and such. Maybe not the most riveting of reading material, but interesting for this reason. The documents were written by local indigenous people, writing down their languages using the Latin script. Dutch missionaries had brought the Latin script to southern Taiwan in the 1600s, but many of the Singkan documents date from centuries later, showing southern indigenous people writing their languages long after the Dutch left, and using it to make deals as well. Included in this exhibit is a document from the early 19th century, when imperial China ruled Taiwan. The contract was in force for close to a century. Attached is a certificate issued in the early 20th century, registering the contract in a new era, after Taiwan had come under Japanese colonial rule. Like many Sinkan manuscripts, this contract was entered into between indigenous people and ethnic Chinese neighbors, and so it's bilingual, with a Chinese translation to one side. Many of the other items on display are inscribed stones of various kinds from the Imperial Chinese period. This makes sense. These stones are durable, and they tend to mark important places. Three of these stones are siblings, once marking out the same area, but scattered, only to be rediscovered under very different circumstances. These stones were boundary markers for the local customs authority. In the 1860s, Kaohsiung was among those harbors opened up to foreign commerce under Imperial China's unequal treaties with Western powers. Taiwan had three other ports forced open to foreign trade, but marker stones like these have only been unearthed in Kaohsiung. It's unclear how many of these stones there used to be. Of the few stones experts knew about, one was already in the museum's collection. But in the past year or so, two more of these stones have turned up and joined the collection. It all happened thanks to two rather strange coincidences. The story starts with a group of mountain climbers who stumbled across an unusual stone one day. 
Had these been average hikers, they might not have known what they were looking at and just moved on. But here was the first coincidence. It just happened that these hikers knew a thing or two about local history and recognized what these stones were. The second coincidence came after they hauled the stone down the mountain and took it to a local police station. The way Mr. Wong tells the story, it sounds like the officers were skeptical at first about its value. One officer suddenly realized that his friend happened to have an exact copy of this stone lying in his garden. Everyone told him not to make things up, but it was true. The officer's friend worked at a temple and had taken a liking to the stone after it was unearthed during a project. Both these stones proved authentic, and in the past months, both have been donated to the museum. It's like we always say, Mr. Wong tells me, old objects pop out and find people, an interesting way of turning our usual view of discovery on its head. Most of the other objects featured in this exhibit are carved stones too. Also on display are inscribed stone plaques taken from two sets of defensive walls, old and new, that were built near Kaohsiung under imperial Chinese rule. And there's another stone marking out the grounds of an office of guards, a task force a bit like a cross between the Coast Guard and customs inspectors. Mr. Wang says these guards were tasked with inspecting boats in the harbor. Only this last stone has an inscription of any length on it, a text warning these guards not to give people a hard time without reason. The rest of the stones are carved with just a few simple characters, explaining exactly what they are. The West Gate, the boundary stone of such and such, and so on. But this lack of words doesn't mean that these stones have nothing to say to us. In fact, each of these objects, both stones and documents, were chosen for this exhibit for a reason. The objects can be grouped into three units, three vignettes that give us a look into three aspects of Kaohsiung's early history. The example Singkan manuscript and other land deeds on display tell the story of Kaohsiung's land, how it was bought, sold, rented, and used as collateral early on. And it also tells a story of migration. Many literate indigenous people came from the Tainan area north of Kaohsiung. The area had been a center of Dutch power and also of ethnic Chinese settlement. Dutch rule ended, but settlement continued. And by the 19th century, many indigenous people had been pushed outward to places including Kaohsiung. Meanwhile, the boundary stones for the customs and inspections facilities tell the story of Kaohsiung's port, today a center of container shipping that even then was a place of international commerce. The plaques taken from fortified walls, meanwhile, tell the story of Kaohsiung's defensive works. The three-part story that emerges was only partly deliberate on the museum's part. Other relics from the collection are now on display in a different exhibit, so it was the remaining items that were brought together for consideration. The story of land, harbor, and walls jumped out at the curators. Old objects, Mr. Wang says, can talk to us in this way. This is fortunate, because Mr. Wang says the museum wanted themes and stories, not just a collection of ten unrelated items. 
the three themes also happened to match up with work the museum was doing anyway. It of course preserves old documents, but it's also held a symposium related to a railroad that ran to the harbor. And it's even opened a branch museum devoted to the old defensive walls. It all adds up and comes back full circle. What do Mr. Wong and his museum hope the public will learn from these 10 objects? He says the key is getting people to appreciate the connection between these objects and the area where they come from. Many people look at inscribed stones and documents and just see rocks and some paper. What could these things actually represent? And what do they really have to do with Kaohsiung? This is why it helps to group the objects into three units, showing people the bigger stories they symbolize. It's these stories and these chapters in Kaohsiung's history that the museum hopes the public will see. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>